All right, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 13. We're just going to be looking at three verses this morning, verses 1 through 3. You can find it on page 921 there in the Pew Bibles. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. So the blue and white Bibles that are there, those are yours for the taking. Please do take one as you go, and that's our gift to you for being here. When are we at our best? When are we living out our lives at an optimal capacity? When is our society, say, functioning at its finest? When we are under God, united for the betterment of others, to uphold truth, justice, and goodness, to protect and serve liberty, when our leaders are trustworthy? What about a tree? When is a tree functioning at its best? When is it living optimally? When it's healthy? When it provides shelter? When it bears much fruit? Or the human body? When is the human body functioning well? When it's active? When it's productive? When it's healthy? What about man? When is a man considered mature? When, in grace and truth, he puts childish ways behind him, and in faith, truth, love, hope, he seeks to lead and love his family well, to serve, to provide, to protect, to multiply those that the Lord has placed in his care. What about the church? When is the church at her best? When, like all these other examples, she is united in love and truth to sacrifice of herself for the sake of missions. When a healthy church actively seeks to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, she is at her very best. Missions requires her greatest commitment, her greatest sacrificial service. Missions enlists her very best leaders, her very best servants. Missions requires and necessitates her most earnest prayers. When the church is engaged in missions, she is her most Christ-like. She is her most daring. She is her most loving. She is her most glorious. She is her most saving. When a bride walks down the aisle towards her groom, dressed in pure white, holding that bouquet of fragrant flowers, she is at her best. And so too, when the church, the bride of Christ, makes her way down the center aisle towards the end of the earth, beaming in joy and in love for her bridegroom as she approaches Christ at the front, making that her ambition, making that her joy, holding in her hands the aroma of the gospel as she goes to the ends of the earth. She is at her very best. She is her most beautiful. She is her most excellent. She is at her very optimal, moral, pure goodness. She is holy. She is wonderful. She is adorned and arrayed as Christ had intended her to be. Church never looks so beautiful so radiant, so glorious, than when she advances into the world with the love of God in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When the church is engaged in her call to mission, she is at her very best. This morning in Acts chapter 13, we are going to see a church that is at her best. In the midst of her earnest prayer, In reverent service to the Lord, the church in Antioch is going to submit to the Holy Spirit's call to set apart two of her very finest, Saul and Barnabas, for the work of missions. And they are going to commission them to proclaim the word of God and to safeguard the truth by establishing new churches in places as they went. 
And friends, this is big. This is a major turning point in the book of Acts because up to this point, the ministry of the word in the book of Acts was directed primarily towards the Jews. Now, it did go to the Samaritans. It went to the Gentiles also, but primarily directed towards the Jews. The central hub of the church was Jerusalem and the means by which God spread the gospel to the ends of the earth was through persecution. As the followers of Christ were, were faithful to love and serve Jesus, right? God brought about this persecution that drove them out to the very ends of the earth. And as they went, they were faithful in their joy in God's sustaining grace to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to disciple new believers, to appoint elders in different places and to establish churches as they went, even in the midst of overwhelming opposition. At this point, it's different. Now in Acts 13 on, the ministry of the word primarily now goes to the Gentiles. Now it goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, but they're in Gentile lands. The central hub of this missional undertaking is now Antioch, one of the very churches that was established as the church spread to Syria. And the means now through which the gospel was spread was not through persecution, but spirit-led, proactive, intentional, purposeful missions. The church went from defense to offense, from being scattered by persecution to now intentionally seeking to be scattered as the Spirit led them out on this missionary enterprise. And in seeing this church in Antioch that is at its best, what I hope and pray for us is that it would motivate us to consider the call to mission that Christ has for us right here at Redeemer. That we would not look at this in abstraction, say, oh, that's great for them, but that we would think deeply about what that means for us. Who sins and by what authority? What is the context and what is the priority for missions? And by doing that, I hope that we will see the implications that that has for our mission here at Redeemer. But I want to go one step further than that. Right, because it's not just us generally. Yeah, I'm a part of Redeemer, so God, when, when you're going to do something among them, but for us to consider deeply what that means for each and every one of us. Perhaps you've been wondering and considering yourself this call to, to missions, and you're wondering, what does that look like? How should I go about pursuing that? Or maybe you're sitting here and you're just like, nope, never, never, never thought of it at all. But I pray that the Lord would use this time to challenge your heart as well. Because the reality is that, that Christ could call anyone. And I pray that this will be helpful for us to consider this carefully as the Lord might place this upon each and every one of us as we strive by God's grace together to be our best. And so what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 is is this call to missions. We'll focus on next time, Lord willing, on, on the priority and missions. This time, we're just going to focus specifically on this call. And when a church is at its best, missions extends from the local church by the Holy Spirit through the affirmation of the congregation. This is what it looks like for God to call to missions. This is what is necessary. Missions extends from the local church by the Holy Spirit through the affirmation of the congregation. And so as we read this text, I pray that God would, would clarify and compel us in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the mission of Christ wherever we are, and whatever he would have us to go. So with that, let's read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. Now, friends, I, I just need to say this right up front, that our call to discipleship, our, our call to be a follower of Christ is a call to make disciples of all nations. And so our call to Christ in the gospel, saving us, is by its nature a call to missions. We cannot separate that out. We need to get that. Wherever we are, whoever we are, no matter what stage in life you are or where you happen to be, you have been called to missions. Here we see this call to missions being engaged as a church, right? What does it look like for the church? What is the church at its best? Because that's what we want to be. And so how do we think about this call to missions that Christ has given us? Who do we send? What do they do? And so to answer these questions, we want to consider three things. We want to consider the context for missions. We want to consider the catalyst for missions. And we want to consider, third, the confirmation for missions, And so first, the context for missions. Friends, missions was not man's idea. Missions is God's. The missionary enterprise was not started by William Carey, the father of modern missions. It began long, long before that. It's not a matter of human strategy or personal desire, but the plan and passion of God to save a people for his own possession. And why does he save them? To be zealous for good works. But to be more specific, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2 says that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous night, light. To, to take this people who were once hopeless and helpless and without God in the world and to make them new. To give them new and eternal life in Jesus Christ. A life that is lived completely different than the world around them, that lives for different purposes to make them through this gospel of Jesus Christ by the death and resurrection of his son to be his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, and to send them out as ambassadors with this life-giving gospel message to the very ends of the earth. It's for all of us in one fashion or another Missions is not man's idea or activity, it is God's. Friends, at the very center of the missionary enterprise is not man's choosing to go or the church's choosing to send, but the eternal Father choosing to send his one and only beloved Son, his very best, to do what the world could never do, to save people by sacrificing of himself for sin, rising again to rule and to reign, to reveal the glory of his name to those who do not know him. That was the first wave of this missionary enterprise, but the second wave of the missionary enterprise was that the Father and the Son then sent forth the Holy Spirit to guide, to lead, to protect to give life to those who were in death, to open the eyes and hearts of those who were once dead in their sins so that they can now behold the glory of Christ. And in beholding the glory of Christ, you don't keep it to yourself. You can't help but share it. And in sending the Son and the Spirit, he then, through their work, sends out the church, to be involved in this missionary enterprise, to tell of who and what they love. The Holy Spirit empowers them for the mission of God. Christ commissions the church to be his ambassadors, to go and to make disciples of all nations. Now, they do not incarnate the ministry of Christ. They go out as his ambassadors, merely reflecting the work of Christ. We don't go out in our own plan or in our own abilities, but in the call and power of the Holy Spirit according to the will of God because we have been commissioned to make disciples. And so, this, this message, it's geared for the unbeliever. 
if you happen to be here as someone who doesn't follow Christ, you know, I, I just hope that you would, would see that, that the work of God in Christ transforms, it changes, it saves, it brings us from darkness to life, from futility to living the lives that we were always intended to live, lives of hope and, and peace and, and salvation. But it's lives that completely are reoriented by the gospel. And so just even when, when you hear me talk for a really long time about the Bible or, or when you have that really weird, awkward conversation with your friend that you really don't want to have because they want to tell you about Jesus, you know, I, I hope that you understand that the reason why we do this is because God has first loved us and sent forth his son so that we might have this life it's out of the love that we have, have in him and for him and our love that we have for you that, that we would tell you the same. That's all I can say to them. Everything else I've got to say to the church. Now remember that up to this point in the book of Acts, the gospel had been spread from Jerusalem to Syria, even here to Antioch, as the result of persecution. So this was not man's idea. Okay? The gospel was going out, not because man was like, I've got this great idea, I'm going to do something awesome for Jesus, but because they were simply faithful to the gospel, even in the midst of what was happening to them. It's not as though the leaders of the church were like, you know what, we, we just want to see our people share the gospel more. You know, We want to, we want to see people invite more, more unbelievers to church. We, we want to see more baptisms, more decisions for Jesus. And so here, here's what we'll do. Let's go pick a fight with the Jewish council and let's get them to just like get really angry at us and start chasing us down so we got to run for our lives. And then maybe we'll see the church start evangelizing more. I wouldn't recommend that method. No, that's not what happened at all. No, it was God's sustaining grace that fueled the church's joy in Jesus, that compelled them to spread the gospel, to disciple new believers, to raise up leaders, and to start local churches wherever they were scattered in the midst of overwhelming opposition. This was God's work. This was by his grace. And so too here, this missionary enterprise was not man's idea. It was God's. Even when the church is proactive, it's still God's, right? Look at what the church is doing in this passage. Were they developing a vision for a new missions agency? Were they busy writing the core curriculum for their academy? Were they actively planning all sorts of trips and ministry projects all over the world? No. They were faithfully serving in their local church. These five prophets and teachers were preaching and teaching God's word. There was faithful education and exhortation by these leaders from Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the edification and the building up of this local church. These were not itinerant preachers hopping around from place to place, only spending a few days here or there. I mean, Saul is the most recent to be a part of this group, and he's been there at least a year, probably more than that, because they sent Saul and Barnabas off to Jerusalem for a time. Could have been anywhere from one to three years, All right? So these guys were staying. They were investing in the ministry of this local body. They were committed to the education and the edification of this local body. They're not, they're not willing but inexperienced, naive youths these five men were functionally elders of this local church. Though they're not called that, I believe that's what they are. Because the ministry of the word and prayer was their top priority. It's what they were giving themselves to. Also, we see that the church was worshiping the Lord. Now, again, don't let our modern concepts of worship wrongly define it. It wasn't like we're worshiping the Lord's by lowering the lights and turning up the sound system, closing our eyes, raising our hands, and singing songs. No, quite literally, they were serving the Lord. And this word that's used there describing worship, the service of worship, was the same word that was used to describe the activity of the priests in the temple. 
when they were praying for, when they were ministering, when they were mediating, when they were offering sacrifices, when they were educating, when they were teaching and training and building up the next generation. That's what they were giving themselves to. And notice here that they were worshiping the Lord, which means that they were not serving themselves. This wasn't a matter of personal wants or needs or desires. They weren't serving man through consumeristic tendencies, through marketing strategies, through psychological manipulation or cultural preferences. They weren't putting their wants, their needs, their hopes and dreams before God. No, they were serving the Lord. It was about him. In worshiping God as we ought, our desire is to serve God's desire. If we're not serving God's desire, then we are not worshiping the Lord. You get that, right? I mean, that has profound implications for everyday life. Forgiveness, reconciliation, confession of sin, right? What, what we devote our hands to. In worshiping God as we ought, our desire to, is to serve God's desire. And God's desire is that a people from every nation would know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That salvation can be found in no one or in nothing else. And that God's design, as we read earlier in Revelation chapter 7, is that myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation would with one loud voice proclaim, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. And if our worship of the Lord does not catapult us to make that desire for the glory of Christ to be made known among the nations, then I've got to ask you, what are we worshiping? Who exactly are we serving? Is it the Lord or is it ourselves? You see, worship and service to the Lord is both the fuel and the goal of missions. And friends, look at how earnest they were. They were fasting and praying. Right? It's not as though they were just kind of like gathering together, sort of nodding off, checking their cell phones, sipping on their coffee, kind of mind-wandering about other things that they've got to do during the week. It's not as though they were only gathering together when it was convenient, when they didn't have other pressing matters, you know, business trips to go on or family vacations or all that kind of stuff. No, they were committed earnestly to seeking the Lord together as a body. They were fervently seeking to do the will of God. In fasting, their abstaining from food was meant to aid their prayer and to demonstrate that their true nourishment comes from God, not from anything else. And that they hunger for God more than for food. And, you know, if these elders are at all representative of the whole church, which from what we read back in chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, it would suggest that they were, then this church was unified and loving each other well across all social barriers. Right? Education didn't matter. Amount of money you made didn't matter. Color your skin didn't matter. Right? What, what cultural background you come from doesn't matter. You know, how much you sinned in what ways didn't matter. None of it mattered. I mean, look at this. Barnabas was a rich Jew. Simeon, if the Latin name Niger is any description of him, would have been a dark-skinned African, potentially the very first black church leader. You got Lucius of Cyrene, who's a Gentile. Manaean was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. He grew up from birth, more than likely, with Herod Antipas, that immoral Herod that tried and approved of Jesus' death, he was a part of his court. He was nobility. Imagine all of the things that that guy would have experienced in life. And yet here he is, 
And let that even be a testimony to what we learned about last week, chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, when we saw that Herod Agrippa I was eaten by worms and breathed his last because he did not give glory to God, but the word of God increased and multiplied even among his court. Now I say all this because what we see here is that the context of this mission is the local church that under healthy male leadership was committed to the gospel and to each other. There was sound doctrine and faithful exposition of God's word. There was encouragement, there was edification, there was exhortation. This church was united in love to each other regardless of their background and in earnest service to God and not to man. They were engaging both in evangelism and discipleship in their community right there in Antioch because that, after all, is how this church even came to be. And they are zealously seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting. And in that moment, at that moment, that is exactly what the Lord had for them to do. That is exactly what the mission of Christ looked like. This is what he has for us to do. Right? Unless the call of the Holy Spirit to confirm, to set apart others for the sake of sending them out from among us, this is what devotion to the ministry and mission of Christ looks like. Right? This is not a waste of time. This is a healthy church that is devoted to the apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. They're not somehow missing it. Right? They're like missing the call to, to God to go on mission. They're doing exactly what what they were supposed to be doing in devoting themselves to the maturation of this congregation. And we've got to get there. This is not lower class. This is not minor leagues. This is not B team kind of stuff. If only he would call the A team out to missions. This is missions. You've got to get it. Unless the Holy Spirit should set them apart, this is what faithfulness to the mission of Christ looks like faithfully serving in a local body. They were doing missions right where they were. Here's why this matters for the call of missions. If you do it here, you will do it there. If you are not doing it here, you will not do it there. This is a church that missions is to be birthed from. This is the context for missions, not, not man-made strategies, not personal desires, but faithful, active membership within a healthy local church, making disciples of all nations right where they were. You know, seminaries and, and mission agencies, they've got their place. They do. We need them. But the best training ground, the best field lab. The best context for missions is and always will be the local church. And that's because missions, just like missions, the local church was God's idea. And friends, who are we to think that we know better? Until the Holy Spirit should call, this is what devotion to the mission of Christ looks like. It's not hopping around it's not failing to commit to the church. It's not flying solo or trying to fulfill the mission of God by your own strength or abilities. It's not sort of being a, a thorn or a dissenting voice because you think you somehow got it right and the church is somehow missing it. Because here's the thing. Once the missionary goes, what does the missionary do? What do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, they go, they proclaim the gospel, they see people converted. They come to faith in Christ. So you've got this assembly gathering together. They disciple them. They form local churches. They develop and appoint elders. They, they nurture that church to health. And then they move on. And so if you're not doing it here, you won't do it there. If you have not been or you refuse to be a part of a healthy church, how can you go and plant them? When a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
right? No, God intended a healthy local church to be the context, the incubator, the nursery for missions, because the word of God increasing and multiplying will result in healthy churches increasing and multiplying. That's what will happen. And so active membership in a healthy church is the context for missions. And friends, so if, if you want to be considered for the work of a missionary, the first question that I'm going to begin to ask you is regarding your involvement in the local church. I want to know how you've been engaging in the ministry of the Word, in service, in participation in ministry, in in prayer and fasting, in unity and fellowship of the local body. Because again, if you haven't here, then you won't be able to reproduce it there. You don't have a good model. You don't have a good structure. The local church membership within a healthy congregation is the single best indicator of a call to missions. And we want to be a church at its best we want to be that seedbed, that, that context for missions which God uses to send people out. And so here's this church in Antioch at our best. This is how we then devote ourselves to the mission of Christ until the call to missions is made clear. This is not some waste of time. We are to devote ourselves to this local body which is the context for missions. But friends, that all by itself is not enough to necessarily compel us outward. In fact, if we are a faithful, healthy local church, it should actually compel us to stay. Maybe even come back, right? I'm saying that generally. You know who you are. Because... Saul and Barnabas came back too, right? They didn't just abandon and leave Antioch never to come back. No, there was this ongoing relationship. So consider that, which is why we need second, the call of the Holy Spirit, which is the catalyst for missions. Point number two, catalyst for missions. The call to missions is not a matter of personal desire. It is a command, a command of the Holy Spirit. Can I be clearer on that? It's a command. He is the catalyst for missions. Again, verse 2 says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. There's the command. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So while they were worshiping and fasting, while they were faithfully serving and leading the church, while they were fully committed and actively involved in the mission of Christ, right where they were, the Holy Spirit called. It's not as though Saul had been sort of separating himself out, just kind of like, well, you know, I'm here for a little bit, but don't get too used to me here, okay, because I received this call way back in Acts chapter 9, right, that I, I would be God, you know, Christ's chosen instrument. He actually spoke to me, right, I'm his chosen instrument to bear witness to his name before the Gentiles and kings and, and children of Israel. He told me how much I'm going to suffer for the sake of his name, and so, you know, I, I'm just kind of twiddling my thumbs here for a while until, you know, the Holy Spirit makes that clear. Because that was 13 years earlier. Think about that. Jesus shows up, strikes you blind on the road to Damascus. Three days you're praying, repenting, fasting, not eating anything, right? (laughs) And he reveals to you, he's like, you're going to be my chosen instrument and you're going to suffer. Wait 13 years. But it's not as though Saul was sitting sitting idly by. He had been fulfilling that commission ever since. When he was in Damascus, or when he was in Jerusalem those couple of times, or, or in Tarsus, or Arabia, or now there in Antioch. Now, it didn't look the way that he thought it might look. It didn't go the way that he thought it was gonna go. But he was still investing himself. He was still serving the Lord. It wasn't like he was just like, no, 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 no. You guys go ahead. You do your thing. I'm gonna stay over here until the Holy Spirit shows up and kind of tells me, gives me the green light and the thumbs up on doing what I really want to do. Now, he was being faithful to his call wherever he was in whatever capacity that the church needed him to be. 
sent him off to Tarsus. The church did. And you imagine being out there in the desert of Arabia, probably thinking that or feeling like the church had all but forgotten you. It's like, man, I received this call. You know, I'm boldly sharing the gospel. I got to run for my life. Now you ship me off of here and I'm stuck making tents while you're busy doing your other thing and I'm sitting on the sidelines. No, that's not it at all. He was still faithful to the call of Christ that he had received, even if it didn't look like what he thought it would. And so when it came to this call right here in verse two, no one was expecting it. Okay, while they were worshiping the Lord and earnestly seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit, who is always present with them, said, separate apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Friends, this, quite honestly, this, this ought to be understood and seen as both a blessing and a confirmation of this local church that while they were faithfully worshiping the Lord and serving God and not man, the Holy Spirit calls them to multiply their ministry through, through missions in ways that they weren't expecting. I mean, what a testimony to his faithfulness. This is a sovereign call from the Lord. It's not optional. It's like, Holy Spirit showing up. I, I, I just, I'd like you to prayerfully consider setting apart for me some people that, Maybe you just want to get rid of, for the sake of, of my work, which is nebulous, we're not going to define it, somewhere else. It's not what happened. The Holy Spirit shows up. It's not a matter of personal interest or inward longing. They were happily serving the Lord, and the Holy Spirit says, you are going to do this. This is a sovereign call. And it's also a personal call. It's a personal call for Barnabas, personal call for Saul. But by default, it was a personal call for everybody else too. And this personal call that the Holy Spirit makes is for those two and not everybody else. But don't think that that somehow it's like, oh, they got a special call from the Lord and, and we're the leftovers, we're the rejects, we're, we're not part of the all-stars here. No, because anytime God calls them there, he calls you here. We've got to get that. Yes, he equips them. Yes, yes, they go out according to this personal call that he places upon their lives. He equips them specifically for this work of missions, them and not others. But we, under, we need to understand that, that all are called in some capacity. We're going to deal with this more later. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But notice here that the Holy Spirit didn't call the eager but inexperienced. Right? It's not like he just kind of opened invitation here, looking for some missionaries, anybody want to go? And some, some guy, Billy Bob, you know, raises his hand in the back, I'll go, send me. That's not what happened. Since Saul and Barnabas, right? He, he didn't call those who were zealous but apart from knowledge. He didn't call the immoral, the unskilled, or the untrained. He didn't call those who were just a little socially awkward and didn't really know how to fit in with other people around them or those who were unable to shepherd or lead. It wasn't like he, the call kind of said, okay, you know, the elders were thinking, you know what, I, I can never really make those guys an elder here at Redeemer, so maybe in Africa. Or, or, or yet they're, they're so like, they're just thorny and divisive and dissenting, and you're just like, man, God love them, but man, it's hard for me. So I know what. Let's send them off to Siberia. Yeah. Now, that may be our intention, but that's not the Lord's. No. You see the Holy Spirit calling their very best, those who had proven themselves to be faithful shepherds to this local body. He calls the people that we don't want to lose. Barnabas, don't send that guy. That guy's rich. Man, he's like, it paid for our building and stuff. This guy's loaded. And, and not to mention the fact that he's just so encouraging. I want to be around him. He's a great pastor. I don't want to lose that guy. And, and Saul, you can't take Saul. Saul's going to write half of the New Testament. We got to keep that guy. But that's who the Holy Spirit 
calls. God established the local church as a training ground for developing leaders. And the church at its best sends out its best for the cause of Christ. And if we're going to see the gospel faithfully proclaimed across cultures and the church established that can grow new believers to maturity and to safeguard them from error, that means that the Holy Spirit is going to send our best too. And so this call to missions from the Holy Spirit is sovereign, it's personal. It extends, you know, in sending the very best, but this call is also a holy call to multiply. God is going to set them apart to prune their faithful, healthy ministry from Antioch in order to plant and establish it in new places. And I look at this and I just kind of marvel at the providence of God because back in chapter 11, what do you have happening? Right? Saul and Barnabas had been ministering there for at least a year, but then the church elects to send Saul and Barnabas with this gift of, of, of money to Jerusalem. And so they leave right? And in the end of chapter 12, they come back. And then you have this. And you even got to look providentially. It's like how God orchestrated all things together. It's like the church actually realized that they could live without them. But nevertheless, this is still a holy call. It's like to, to multiply. It's like the hostas along uh, the side of our porch, right? We, we had these things growing and they were just, they're they're starting to turn into trees. They're just gigantic, right? And so back in May, Travis comes over and he digs out like two-fifths of these hostas, just like chops them up, divides them, goes and plants them in his yard. So now these hostas are both in his yard and they're in my yard and they're both growing great. You look at my yard, you would never know that we were missing any of our hostas. Now they were planted in different ways in different places in Travis's yard, but they're still the same. And so, too, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, to set apart, to plant, to multiply, to reproduce this healthy ministry that they were doing right there in Antioch. Sure, some things might have looked a little different, just like the way the hostas were planted in Travis's yard and not the same way that they're planted in my yard, but they're still the same. At their core, the ministry was the same, whether it be in Jerusalem or Samaria or Antioch or Rome. Style can vary a little bit, and that's okay, but not the core principles, the priorities, and the truth that they proclaim. Separating them out from this healthy church is the best way then to see the word of God increase and multiply faithfully and not deviate from it as the one who has inspired the word, the Holy Spirit's call, would certainly want to ensure a faithful proclamation, a faithful retelling, a faithful increase and multiplication of his word. The Holy Spirit is going to safeguard his word and he does it by sending people out, by multiplying healthy ministries. This is a holy call. And the faithful proclamation, both in life and doctrine, it's a holy call to multiply. And this call that's from the Holy Spirit to missions is a demanding call to obedience. He says, set them apart for the work to which I have called them to which I have literally summoned them. The call to missions is not a call to overseas vacations for Jesus. Need a little getaway, need a little break from my routine, got to go serve the Lord somewhere else, sip some coffee, have a few conversations, do a little service project, think I've done something for the Lord. No, it is a work. It's a labor it's demanding. It requires our lives. The call to missions is not an escape from the challenges of life. It's, in fact, guaranteed to compound them. I mean, have you ever read Paul's description of his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? I've read it multiple times this week, and I can assure you that he doesn't say anything about margaritas by the beach. He talks about weakness, ridicule, persecution, dangers, shipwrecks, toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, exposure to the cold, and the daily pressure of his anxiety for all the churches, but not margaritas. But those who are 
called to this demanding work go because the Holy Spirit has summoned them. It's not about what they want. It is about what he calls them to. It's not about where they want to go or what they might think might be fun for Jesus, but where he leads them and they gladly go. You can see in their response that it was immediate, it was prayerful, it was public. Because the catalyst of missions, the Holy Spirit, was calling them to go. And so they went. That's the authority behind our missionary endeavors. But friends, I do have to say this before we move on, that the Holy Spirit not only commands the church to set them apart and to send them out, the Holy Spirit is also the one who strengthens and equips them to do what he has called them to do. And in the midst of their weakness and insufficiency, in the midst of all of this persecution, the dangers, the despair that they experienced upon along the way, Saul and Barnabas in obedience to this call, were never, ever alone because the Holy Spirit was always present with them, guiding them, sustaining them, strengthening their faith, comforting them, filling them with righteousness, peace, joy, and hope. And Christ has promised that the Holy Spirit will do that for all whom the Lord calls to himself. Whether the Lord calls you to some overseas place, like these people that we prayed for in India, or just across the streets, the Holy Spirit is present, equipping you to do what he has called you to do. To be disciples who make disciples wherever you are, according to the gifts and strength that the Lord supplies. And so, if you're here and you've maybe been sensing like a call to missions for for a while now, but but if you're honest, you're, you're kind of afraid of the unknown or the unexpected. and You're, you're just fearful to step out and, and be set apart. I just want you to take heart. Yes, the mission of Christ is more than you can handle. He will give you more than you can handle. But not more than he can handle. He will never call you to something that he doesn't also guarantee that he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so if the Holy Spirit is calling you from that context of faithful local church ministry to bear witness to the mission of Christ, go in the power that you have and go in the power that you will receive in the Holy Spirit. And so the context for missions is faithful, healthy, local church, the church at its best. The catalyst of missions is the call of the Holy Spirit, and the church at its best earnestly seeks to obey the will of God in whatever the Holy Spirit calls us to. And so third, the confirmation of, the, of missions or for missions is the affirmation of the church. The church at its best is willing and able to confirm for missions. This is our joy, this is our privilege, and this is our responsibility. Verse 3, the Holy Spirit, having directed the church to set apart Saul and Barnabas, sought prayerfully to affirm this call. And it says, then after fasting and praying and laying their hands on them, they sent them off. Now, If they have already been fasting and praying, which we've already seen that they have, before the Holy Spirit called, and this call of the Holy Spirit is a command, it's not an option, right? He said to do this, why then do you have verse 3? You ever think about that? Why do you have them fasting and praying yet again? Why do you have them laying their hands on them and sending them off when in verse 4 it says that the Holy Spirit is the one who sent them off? If the authority of the call to missions resides with the Holy Spirit, then why do you have verse 3 at all? Well, it's because this command given by the Holy Spirit is not just to Saul and Barnabas. 
but it's given to the whole church. That command set them apart was for the church. The congregation of spirit-filled, born-again believers. I, I, I love how much, well, I don't love, I'm, I'm being ironic, right? I'm being sarcastic. Right? I don't love it. it, it annoys me to no end how when we really want something and we kind of think that the Lord is behind it, we're just like, well, you know, Lord's calling me to this and I have a peace about it. And no one else does around you and you kind of forget the fact that the, they're two born-again believers who've received the Holy Spirit. Perhaps if we're set apart, more of the church would agree. Right? And so if the Holy Spirit did indeed call Saul and Barnabas and the whole church is comprised of people who have been regenerated by and have indeed received the Holy Spirit, then they too, through earnest seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting, would be able to affirm this call to missions. They would be of the same mind. This is how we know whether or not we have truly been called to missions. Not that inward sensing of the call of the Holy Spirit to ministry, but the church who knows us, who has fellowshiped with us, who loves us, who has seen our character, our hearts, our growth in the gospel, who has been edified through our mutual ministry and who knows our capabilities of leaders and who have also received the Holy Spirit just as we have, would and should be able to confirm this call to missions. So if you've not been faithful or a faithful, active, servant-hearted member of a healthy local church, if no one really knows you or can affirm your character or your conduct or your capabilities as a leader, then what confirmation do you actually have that you have been sent by the Holy Spirit? All you have are passions and feelings. And that's great. Not, I'm, I'm not throwing those things out. But I am going to challenge you because that's not enough to sustain you in ministry. That's not enough to kind of be the dew from heaven that feeds you when, when you're going hungry and you're out in the cold and everybody's against you and you think that you've somehow missed God's call for your life. Because it'll happen if you're basing it purely upon my inward desire to go and do this, when, when life gets really hard and the ministry is quite literally kicking your tail, you're going to turn to the Lord and ask, did I miss something here? And you've got no foundation for support. You've got nothing to assure you that you haven't missed it. I know because I've been there. Could it be that the reason why you're experiencing that is because you have not submitted yourself to the confirmation of the church? Now, the confirmation of the church is not going to make it easy, but it will strengthen our assurance that we have not misunderstood the Holy Spirit's call for us. And if the church who has earnestly covenanted with you in this fellowship in this partnership in ministry, who also has the Holy Spirit, if they cannot affirm you because of a lack of character or a lack of experience or, or a lack of capabilities, then I've got to be honest with you and say you have not been called by the Holy Spirit. At least not yet. I've seen this far too often. And well-meaning brothers and sisters just charge off, whether it be to seminary or missionary agencies or overseas or to go plant churches or to do some kind of ministry that the Lord had not called them to do. And they make it a shipwreck, not just for themselves, but for all of those who they earnestly desire in goodwill to share the gospel with. A 
Again, the church was able to fast and pray and send them off immediately because Saul and Barnabas were proven leaders. They knew them. They knew them well. They knew their strengths and their weaknesses. They knew their passions and their giftings. The church had been edified and encouraged and exhorted towards maturity in Christ through their faithful ministry. And so this is obvious. This is why we can fast and pray and send them off right away. But if the church can't say that of you, then the inward sense is not enough. And this is why you need the local church as that context for missions because seminaries and missions agencies, as important as they are and well-meaning as they are, can't truly get to know you well enough to confirm that call. You need the local church from that, for that. And, and you, what you don't need is the little old ladies who love you desperately that, that when you come up the front and say, I think the Lord's calling me to missions, they're just going to go, amen, and send you out. They need people who are going to discern carefully, who love you enough to speak the truth, but are going to walk with you in it. And so, if you wonder whether or not you have been called, and you're questioning your motives or your fitness for this work, my encouragement to you is to invest in the local church and to ask for help in the confirmation of this call. Right? A, a healthy local church will, will have the means of, of developing leaders and confirming the call to ministry. We have that here. It's not perfect, but it works. If you are unfaithful here, though, you will be unfaithful there. But if you are faithful here, with whatever the little the Lord might have for you to be ministering right here in this body. Maybe it's not what you think. What would you expect? You would like to see more, but you're faithfully serving to the best of your capabilities and you're waiting for your opportunity to shine all the more or whatever you want to call it. I hate using that word, but that's what came to mind, right? Then Christ promises that if you are faithful with that little, that he will make you faithful with much. So start somewhere. If you're faithful, it'll get noticed. But don't try to hurry the call of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Apostle Paul spent 13 years between his missionary call that was present right there at his conversion and the call of the Holy Spirit to go on that first missionary journey. And it's not as though he wasted time in between. He was faithful in whatever the Lord had for him. Never stopped growing, never stopped seeking the Lord, never stopped serving, never stopped spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, never stopped discipling believers. And so devotion to the local church in making disciples of all nations right where you are is devotion to the mission of Christ, even if you never, ever, ever, ever board a plane. Friends, I, I want so much for us to send missionaries out for the cause of Christ. Not, not, not just like, you know, people get jobs other places and the Lord takes them other places and they're serving the Lord faithfully where they are. I love them for that. Miss them dearly. But what, what I mean is that, that the Lord would earnestly and truly raise up people from among us that would go out for the cause of Christ. I want to see Redeemer confirming Christ's commission as our people are set apart for this great work that Christ has called them to. But I want us to do it wisely and faithfully. And that's not sending any willing volunteer or people that we know who might risk making a shipwreck of the faith, whether in life or in doctrine. Instead, it is training and equipping and affirming our very best the local church, established and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, will be able to affirm the Holy Spirit's call to missions. But there's another reason why verse 3 is present. In praying and fasting and laying their hands on Saul and Barnabas, 
The church was not only confirming this call and sending them out as affirmed ambassadors to multiply the ministry that Christ had among them, they were promising the blessing of continual prayer and support to them as they went. The church in Antioch didn't send them off never to hear from them again. Just like, get them out of here. They're gone. It was an ongoing, continual relationship. This local church would continue to pray and support them, sending people and resources. It would serve as a lifeline to Saul and Barnabas in their darkest hours. At the end of each and every journey, Paul and Barnabas would return to Antioch to report all that the Lord had done. Their fellowship and their partnership in this ministry continued. Saul and Barnabas, they were not just God's missionaries, they were the church in Antioch's missionaries. They loved them. They sent them out, but they continued to invest in them. You see, their mission for Christ was never at any moment separated from the ministry of the local church. And this is one of the challenges to modern forms of missions. Missionaries often struggle and feel isolated and alone because they don't have a strong, committed partnership with a local sending church. They go through agencies, they're raising support, but they're not really well connected. People don't know to follow up with them. They don't have that relationship. And so they're out there on their own, they're suffering, and they just feel just like God has forgotten them. Or churches have this tendency to, to just throw money or, or general prayers at the direction of missions. You know, we'll, we'll give to cooperative program. We'll, we'll pray for, for missions throughout the world. But we're not intentionally, purposefully partnering in order to faithfully support the work of a few beloved brothers and sisters. Friends, that matters. I can assure you it matters. When I was at my loneliest and darkest, it's when I felt as though I'd been forgotten. But even while we're here in the midst of this congregation, still, there's something about that connection to your sending church and, and the support that you receive through them that is sustaining. And I've never felt so alive or so much joy or just like hope than when I got a call from them or, or when I got a letter or an email from them or when I was able to have a visit from them. There was, there was just something very rejuvenating and encouraging. It was a lifeline to me as I was planting this church. And, and, and I earnestly believe that this is the way that God intended our fellowship to be. But friends, for every call to go, there is the call to stay to give, to send and support and pray for our dear brothers and sisters that we send out from among us. This is not a lesser call to provide not just the initial confirmation of this call to ministry, but the ongoing confirmation of prayer and support. And so when we see the church laying their hands on Saul and Barnabas to send them off, this is not a sign of severing. It is a promise of continual blessing and prayer and support to continually confirm them in this mission that the Holy Spirit had called them to. And friends, this is the church at its best. This is what we want to be about here at Redeemer. This is how we want to think about the congregation and the Holy Spirit's call to missions. That missions extends from the church by the Holy Spirit through the affirmation of the congregation. This is the context, the catalyst, and the confirmation of our missionary enterprise. And so through faithful service to the mission of Christ here, may the Holy Spirit call and set apart many for the work of missions abroad. And may we be able to confirm and continually support them in their work for the glory of Christ and for the growth of His church to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that this text would cause us to think very deeply 
about the importance of the local church, even in the sending. Lord, we confess that so often we think of ourselves individualistically. We think of our relationship with you apart from our brothers and sisters. We think about uh, the work that we would do for you, the call that you've placed upon our lives as, as individuals rather than as a body. And Lord, I pray that that would change. That the truth of this text would cause us to think differently about what you've given us to do right here and right now. That we would not see this as some lesser thing. Or just being stuck on the bench rather than devoting ourselves to the mission of Christ right where we are. I pray that we would fully acknowledge the, the call of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we would, we would see that not as an optional thing, not as a light thing, not as a temporary, just happy, clappy kind of thing, but just this is a demanding call that will engage us for our whole lives and, and we want to go in obedience. We want to go in ways that truly reflect the glory of Christ. We want to see the church established in these new places by the power of the Holy Spirit under your direction and under your plan, not our own. And Lord, as a church, we want to be able to truly confirm those that you have called. We want to see them raised up from among us, trained and developed and sent out and continually supported because this is this, this mission that you have given to the church to make disciples of all nations, you have given to the church. And Lord, we thank you for how you've united us in Christ. As we celebrate now the Lord's Supper, I pray that, again, this would not be an individualistic endeavor, but this is something we do as a body. And this itself is missions to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.